Welcome back to There is a Season, the Pete Seeger podcast. This is your host, Adam Morse. There is a Season is a podcast devoted to reevaluating the work, music, and politics of the late American folk musician Pete Seeger. On this show, we work towards rediscovering and getting more in touch with Pete Seeger's contributions to better understand how we can more fully apply them now and in the future. Join us today as we discuss Pete's move to New York City, his meeting Lead Belly and Woody Guthrie, his travels west and first attempts at performing, and the organization of his first semi-professional group, the Almanac Singers. Pete Seeger dropped out of Harvard University in April of 1938. Not only was he turned off by the lack of journalism courses offered, he did not have much penchant for studying in general, nor was the Harvard campus really a space where Seeger was comfortable expressing his more radical views. In search of something more, Pete Seeger left Cambridge, Massachusetts for the wider horizons of New York City. Seeger's journey across Massachusetts to New York is a tale in and of itself. Pete did not take a train or a car, but rather cycled his way across Massachusetts and the Berkshires. To pay for food on the way and find places to crash, he spent time along his route stopping to do watercolor paintings of people's farmhouses and barns in the country. Ironically, Pete would sometimes paint first, then walk up to somebody's front door and offer them the painting in exchange for a meal. On certain occasions, Pete would be discovered by someone in their field before he even finished painting. Knowing Pete Seeger's independent way of doing and being, none of this is really very shocking, and these experiences of course prepared him for much more extensive travels later on. Eventually, when Seeger arrived in New York City, he first lived with his brothers in the Lower East Side on East 11th Street. For Seeger, New York City was a world of otherness that piqued his desire for something new and different. An environment that was more ethnically, socioeconomically, architecturally, and musically diverse than before, this seemed like the right space to escape the stuffy halls of Harvard and Avod Old Farms boarding school in Connecticut. But now Pete faced the reality of supporting himself as a college dropout. After a few interviews, Seeger discovered that newspapers and media agencies were not interested in hiring college dropouts, even if they had dropped out of Harvard. In a frustrated economic state, Pete's Aunt Elsie, who was the principal of the famous Dalton School, got him some banjo gigs at schools around Manhattan. Doing gig work like this led Pete to playing music for Margot Mayo's American Square Dance Group. Margot Mayo was born in Texas in 1910 and arrived in New York City in the 1930s, where she was instrumental in developing folk and square dancing in urban settings, not just through group participants, but also by way of the organization's publication Promenade, a magazine of American folklore. It is also worth mentioning that this connection between Pete and Mayo's American Square Dance Group later led to the dancers being featured in the 1947 State Department informational film To Hear Your Banjo Play, which was narrated by Seeger and Alan Lomax. But more on that film in a later episode. What is worth noting here in greater detail is that it was at Mayo's group in 1939 where Seeger met his future wife, Toshi Oda. Toshi's story is, in many ways, a unique one. In brief, Toshi's mother, Virginia Berry Harper, was originally from the state of Virginia and was related to Jim Bowie of the Bowie Knife. 
Toichi's mother had married a Japanese exile, Takashi Ota, who was descended from members of Japan's upper feudal society. His father, Sumiwo Ota, had been one of the first Japanese to study in Europe, and in doing so became connected to the radical left through observing the transition of power with the Paris Commune in 1871 when he happened to be there. For those unfamiliar, the Paris Commune was the government of France for about two months in 1871 that seized power after the war between France and Prussia and the collapse of Napoleon III's Republic. As a popularly led government, the Paris Commune is often recognized for having incorporated many rights and liberties that had yet not been seen in the modern state system. This included postponements of debt and rent payments for French citizens, child labor laws, and separation of church and state in public schools. And while the commune did not actually extend women the right to vote, there were some initiatives proposed for expanding rights and opportunities for women, such as legalization of sex work, giving women the right to divorce, and making professional education more accessible. The Paris Commune ended when the conservative military forces which had taken refuge at Versailles broke through the city's barriers and effectively ended the leftist government. I am touching on a bit of detail here, but this historical context is important for our story. Because of Sumiwo Ota's association with leftist politics, not just in France, but also because he had later on translated Karl Marx into Japanese, he was sentenced to be banished from Japan. In replacement of Sumiwo being banished, Takashi, his son, volunteered to be banished instead, as was permitted by Japanese law. After leaving Japan, Takashi went to fight for Sun Yat-sen in China, and following this lived in South Africa, South America, and Europe, before eventually coming to the United States. As Virginia Berry's mother would not accept her marriage to a foreigner, and therefore her child, Toshi's parents decided to go to Europe to have their child in peace. Toshi was born in Munich, Germany in July 1922, and at six months her mother brought her back to the United States. Because of the infamous Oriental Exclusion Act, also known as the Immigration Act of 1924, Toshi would have been prohibited from being able to enter the country. As the law stipulated, children of parents of less than 50% American heritage could not enter the United States. Virginia would have been prevented from bringing her daughter through customs if she had not lied about the baby's father. The Oda family settled in Greenwich Village and for a time lived in Woodstock, New York in the early 30s. In Woodstock, Takashi worked as a set designer and director at the Maverick Theater before the family returned to the city. For those interested, Takashi Oda's story was put down in his 1929 semi-autobiographical book called The Golden Wind, which he wrote with the assistance of the American writer Margaret Sperry. Pete and Toshi would hang out on a couple of occasions, but the friendship didn't really stretch much beyond that at this time. Pete started getting busier, anyway, when Alan Lomax began introducing him to a plethora of other musicians, either based in New York or who were passing through. 
One of these individuals was Aunt Molly Jackson, a songwriter, union organizer, and former midwife from eastern Kentucky. Molly Jackson was in her late 50s when Seeger met her, and had spent years composing many songs about the coal miners' struggles in her native Kentucky during the 20s and 30s. Perhaps most famously is the song The Ballad of Harry Sims, which, according to the Alan Lomax archive, was written by Jackson and her brother Jim Garland about a young coal miner who was killed trying to organize his fellow miners into the National Miners Union in Harlan County, Kentucky. Come and listen to my story, come and listen to my song. I will tell you of a hero who's now dead and gone. I will tell you of a young boy whose age was 19. He was the bravest union man that I have ever seen. Additionally, one of the other musicians that Alan Lomax introduced to Seeger was a man named Hudy Ledbetter, which professionally everyone at this stage knew as Leadbelly. Hudy Ledbetter's life and work has received decent attention by a variety of authors and documentaries, although his nuanced role as a roots musician in affecting future popular music in the later 20th and 21st centuries has perhaps been overlooked by many of today's musicians, a topic we will later touch on in the podcast. But Leadbelly's story has always been one of myth and intrigue, often constituted by an imagination of violence and incarceration, as well as discourses of racial inequality and unique talent. Ledbetter was born in the late 1880s on a farm near Mooringsport, Louisiana. He went to school in Texas until the 8th or 9th grade, and then left to be an agricultural laborer alongside his father, Wes Ledbetter. By the time he was an older teenager, he was living in Shreveport, Louisiana, spending time on Shreveport's infamous Fannin Street, where he was first exposed to a variety of musical styles. By around 1912, Ledbetter was living in Dallas, where he met the traveling blues musician Blind Lemon Jefferson. Lemon Jefferson was well-versed in the art of being a street musician, and Ledbetter and Jefferson briefly traveled and played together. It was during this collaboration that Ledbetter really began developing his skills on the 12-string guitar. Later in 1918, when Ledbetter was in Texas, he was convicted of murder and sentenced to 30 years in prison. When he was incarcerated at Huntsville in 1925, he was suddenly released from prison after writing and performing a song for Texas's governor, Pat Neff, who happened to be visiting. Reportedly, Neff was amused by Leadbelly's lyrics, quote, Governor Neff, if I had you how you have me, I'd wake up in the morning and set you free, unquote. After hearing this song, in an incredible and seemingly bizarre set of circumstances, Neff decided to exonerate Ledbetter. Ledbetter then traveled and continued performing until 1930, when he was sentenced to a prison term at Angola Prison in Louisiana after ending up in a fight with a white man. In yet another strange twist of fate, in 1933, when Ledbetter was in Angola, he ended up meeting some song collectors by the names of Alan Lomax and his father John Lomax, who were recording Roots music for the Library of Congress at the prison. The Lomaxes recorded Ledbetter singing seven songs and then continued on their song-collecting journey, but they returned in 1934 with more equipment and recorded some more of Leadbelly's tunes. Leadbelly had written another song about Louisiana's governor titled Governor O.K. Allen. Like the song Leadbetter had written in Texas, the song also was a plea for release, containing the lines, quote, I left my wife wringing her hands and crying, 
Governor O.K. Allen, save that man of mine, unquote. In seeing Leadbelly's skill and creativity, John Lomax agreed he would take this recording to Louisiana's governor to encourage Leadbetter's release. Not long after this, Leadbelly was released from Angola. He would always tell others that his song got him out of jail a second time. But in actuality, in addition to state budget cuts during the Great Depression, Leadbelly was released mainly because he had accumulated enough credit time for being a model prisoner. If I had you, Governor, never like you, you got me out. Wake up in the morning, I would set you free. Where you going? I'm going back to Mary. Oh, Mary. Following his release from prison, Leadbelly became John Lomax's personal chauffeur. Lomax began touring around to different northeastern colleges and universities and giving talks on roots and traditional music in the South and in Southern prisons. He would have Leadbelly stand near him while he talked as a visual example of what he was discussing. Eventually, Leadbelly would perform for some of these crowds and started getting noticed, perhaps also because Lomax had him performatively play the part by wearing striped prison clothing. A variety of racialized headlines started popping up in different publications reporting on this spectacle, such as the New York Herald's article, quote, Sweet singer of the swamplands, here to do a few tunes between homicides, unquote. Time magazine called him, quote, the murderous minstrel, unquote. But frustrated by these marketing ploys and because John Lomax would hold on to the majority of Leadbelly's earnings, Leadbelly parted company with John Lomax in 1935. He would still maintain a relationship with Allen, however, who continued helping with bookings and recorded Leadbelly in some lengthy sessions in the late 1930s and early 40s at the Library of Congress. Leadbelly and his wife Martha were with Allen Lomax in 1937 when Leadbelly got the idea for his song Bourgeois Blues, a political commentary on racialized property ownership in Washington, D.C. Some white folks in Washington, they know just how Jungle colored man and nickel just to see him by Lord and the bush for a town. It's the bush for a town. I got the bush for a blue, I'm gonna bend and you all around. Analysis of that particular song and its significance has hardly been complete. Given the way our world now obnoxiously believes that gentrification is the solution to all urban problems, Leadbelly's song, of course, deserves greater investigation. But, again, for another time. Suffice it to say that because of all these stories and myths surrounding this living legend, Pete Seeger did not know exactly what to expect when Alan Lomax called him up one day on the phone and asked if he'd like to drop by and meet Shooty Ledbetter. Seeger grabbed his banjo and headed over as fast as possible. When he arrived, he was surprised to meet a not-so-tall, extremely muscular man, not wearing overalls as Pete had been affecting for a while, but rather a very plush suit. Pete was truly mesmerized by seeing Leadbelly play, although he did feel like a bit of an imposter sitting there. 
Leadbelly seemed to accept Pete, however, perhaps because of his earnestness to absorb the music. It's also worth mentioning that this was probably the first time Pete Seeger formally met a black person. Seeger would soon begin to closely study how Leadbelly played the 12-string guitar, and Pete's approach became largely modeled after Leadbelly's. Here's Pete performing Led's song, New York City, live at the Village Gate with Memphis Slim and Willie Dixon from 1960. As Seeger continued to struggle in finding work in Depression-era New York, his thoughts returned to painting. Pete's art teacher friend, Arthur Stern, asked Pete what else he did. Pete replied that he played the banjo, to which Stern replied, I think you should stick with that. It appeared that Pete Seeger was finally considering taking the idea of music as a profession more seriously. Pete's first foray into this was in the summer of 1939, when by an invitation from a friend, he joined a traveling puppet troupe called the Vagabond Puppeteers as their banjo player. There was no money in this at all, but Pete liked the idea. The troupe drew on methods used by rural educators in post-revolutionary Mexico, where two of the troupe's members had trained. The group wrote up some scripts and booked themselves by a promotional poster across upstate New York, where they performed at church socials and in union halls throughout the summer. By a random chance, the puppeteers both geographically and temporally found themselves in the middle of a significant dairy farmer strike happening across New York State that summer. Certain legal decisions had come down that slashed price controls, and the dairy farmers union went on strike with their milk. In angry and violent interactions with scab drivers, farmers ended up dumping thousands of gallons of milk across highways in protest. The dairy farmers union had a strategy of blocking roads and entrances to dairy facilities so that the milk could not be delivered by non-union labor. The puppeteers met with union officials who welcomed the idea that the troop perform for their workers and their families with new scripts written about the whole price issue going on in the moment right in their midst. The new skits would have Seeger playing a cow who would moo in complaint to his farmer that he was selling his milk too cheaply. The cow would educate the farmer about the union and the farmer would sign up. The play then brought on Mr. Shorten Beffield, the owner of the milk chain, to explain his prices, which was received with much laughter. The skits would end with a rendition of the classic tune, The Farmer is the Man Who Feeds Us All, by the 19th century preacher Noel Shaw. During a show in Ithaca one night, the performers and audiences did not notice scab drivers just down the road, approaching in the darkness, trying to make their way past the union blockade into the local dairy. The scab drivers had turned their lights on at the last minute and drove into the line of farmers, hurling a union steward eight feet into the air. Seeger and the troop later learned that the men had died of internal injuries later that evening. This was likely the first time Pete Seeger was involved with an official strike on any level. But just as importantly, it was Pete's first opportunity to bring music and politics together in a material and tangible way. Buys all his credit until fall. 
After the tour was over, Seeger found himself back in the city, trying to focus on playing the banjo with more committed depth. Lomax felt as if Pete needed to learn more about folk music, so he invited Seeger to take a job working for him at the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C., in the archives. So, in the fall of 1939, Seeger went to Washington to work in the archive for $15 a week. Pete's responsibilities included cataloging recordings and transcribing songs. Consequently, Seeger absorbed much repertoire in the process. His new acquaintances in the archive were songs like Old Joe Clark, The Ballad of Jesse James, Arkansas Traveler, Casey Jones, and Buffalo Gals. Outside of work, Pete mostly kept to himself, but played the banjo constantly, to the point of driving others crazy, with Lomax kicking him out of his apartment one night. Despite the fact that Seeger's playing got on people's nerves, Lomax had been listening to Pete improve on the banjo, and thought some exposure might do him some good. He booked Seeger for his first public appearance as a solo artist in March 1940 at the Grapes of Wrath Benefit Concert for California Farm Workers, which was held at the Forest Theater in New York. The show was chock full of big folk music names. Lead Belly, Burl Ives, Josh White, and Aunt Molly Jackson were present. Seeger had nervously been waiting for hours and felt very small in comparison to the other acts who were there. When Pete was called, he walked out and was immediately blinded by the lights and couldn't see past the first few rows of seats. He tried playing the ballad of John Hardy, but his fingers seized up and he couldn't get through the whole song. Reminiscing on this night later in life, Seeger stated that he didn't really know how to play the five-string banjo yet. He received a friendly applause for his effort and walked off stage. While Seeger might have been embarrassed by this performance, this turned out to be an important night for him anyways. One of the concert's main attractions had just blown in from the West for a surprise appearance. A man by the name of Woody Guthrie. You ain't got the do-re-mi. Why, you better go back to beautiful Texas. Oklahoma, Kansas, Georgia, Tennessee. California is a garden of Eden. A paradise to live in or see But believe it or not You won't find it so hot If you ain't got the do-re-mi Like Leadbelly's life, Woody Guthrie's is also well documented, although there doesn't seem to be a podcast devoted to his life either. Regardless, for those that aren't familiar, a few notes about Woody. Woodrow Wilson Guthrie was born in 1912 in Okima, Oklahoma. Different sources tell different stories about Woody's socioeconomic status as a youth, with some saying he was a working-class guy from the beginning, and others saying that his family had more of a middle-class status until Woody was a bit older. Woody's father, Charlie, was a local politician and businessman. According to a 2018 article by The New Yorker and Gustav Sadler's 2020 book, Woody Guthrie, An Intimate Life, Charlie Guthrie was likely a member of the KKK after its revival in the teens and was connected with planning a lynching in 1911. These are all things, of course, that Woody would come to rail against in his life through his music. Woody's musical education came from Jimmy Rogers and Carter family records, from which he picked up the guitar and fiddle. 
He left school early to do various jobs, such as picking cotton and hauling wood. His life in Oklahoma had a variety of mishaps. Charlie Guthrie was badly burned in a fire, his older sister Clara died in a fire, and his mother Nora Bell was sent away to a mental institution when she began acting erratically in the mid to late 1920s, which, unknown to the family and to society at the time, was caused by Huntington's disease, the same illness that Woody had inherited and died from later in 1967. After Charlie Guthrie was burned, he moved to Pampa, Texas to recuperate with his family, and Woody lived with various other families in Okima before he also moved to Pampa. Not long after this, Nora Bell Guthrie died of Huntington's disease in a mental institution in Norman, Oklahoma. Woody Guthrie then married Mary Jennings in Pampa and had two daughters, but amidst the dust storms and economic depression in the panhandle, Woody split and went to California. There he got a job playing music on KFVD radio in Los Angeles. But disliking the commercial nature of the job, and because his choice of songs was being censored, Woody left his family in California and headed for New York. Before long, Woody Guthrie was to have a major presence in Pete Seeger's life. Pete was too shy to approach Woody that evening, who had many hangers-on surrounding him after the show. But Alan Lomax introduced them a few days later. In Lomax's words, quote, you can date the renaissance of American folk song from that night, unquote. Pete and Woody's first time actually working together was a project that Lomax asked the two of them to take on. Allen felt as if folk songs that had political or social undertones had been excluded from most catalogs and anthologies up to this point, and so he felt as if Woody and Pete would be a good team to take this on and actually put something like this together. So, in April of 1940, Seeger and Guthrie organized the volume titled Hard-Hitting Songs for Hard-Hit People. Here's Pete speaking to Utah Phillips about his, Woody's, and Lomax's objectives driving this song compilation project. Instead of expecting educated people in the cities to write the great new music of the future, let's go uh, pick up on the great music that's already been made and build upon it. And they took his example at Molly Jackson of Kentucky, who had written The Miner's Wife, Hungry Ragged Blues, and other songs like that. Uh, she came out of an old Scots-Irish tradition, and she used old tunes and put new words to them. And her younger half-brother, Jim Garland, and her younger half-sister, Sari Ogan, also were making up songs. I Don't Want Your Millions, Mister, The Murder of Harry Sims. And they said, build up on this kind of music, and we may get the best new music of the future. Uh, Alan Lomax couldn't persuade his father to put these songs in a book. He had a big stack of, of, of scratchy field recordings and uh, words from various places. And when Woody and I arrived on the scene in 1940, me coming from New England and Woody from Oklahoma, and started working together, Alan says, why don't you make a book out of this? and he tossed several hundred songs at it. And uh, I thought of the title, Hard-Hitting Songs for Hard-Hit People. And Woody uh, wrote little introductions for the songs. In 1941, we did not get a publisher, but Sing Out Magazine in 1964, 66, did get it printed. It's right now out of print, although I hope someday it'll be in print again. For those who are curious, the book was republished in 2012. Among the songs in the compilation, 
Guthrie and Seeger included tunes such as I Don't Want Your Millions, Mister, a song by Jim Garland, adapted from the traditional tune Greenback Dollar, as well as I Hate the Capitalist System and I Am a Girl of Constant Sorrow, both contributions by Sarah Ogan Gunning. A couple of Aunt Molly Jackson's tunes in the collection included Lonesome Jailhouse Blues and The Kentucky Miner's Dreadful Fate. It is not necessarily shocking that finding a publisher for something like this would have been difficult. This was a relatively short-lived project. Later on in late April and early May of 1940, through Lomax's connections, Woody Guthrie went into a recording studio to put down his now-famous album Dust Bowl Ballads for the label Victor Records in Camden, New Jersey. But after this, Woody suggested to Pete that he go out and see the country. Pete had never really been anywhere west of his father's place in Maryland, and never had even considered the need or possibility of having to explore the hinterlands of America and the benefits that that could provide. Pete's upbringing had subconsciously disciplined him to assume that there was nothing beyond the eastern seaboard worth seeing, but Woody tried to set Pete straight on this. At the time, Pete was sharing an apartment in D.C. with Alan Lomax and, as fate would have it, with Nicholas Ray, later the famous Hollywood director who made the film Rebel Without a Cause. But having no major responsibilities, Pete decided to join Woody on his travels. So, it was on Woody's invitation that of May of 1940, the two of them set off for Guthrie's home in Pampa, Texas. Here's Pete in an interview with actor Tim Robbins in 2006, describing his decision to make this trip with Woody. And so, so after you met him, what led to you two going on the road together? Well, I was a very naive, inexperienced 20-year-old, and he was 27, had been married for 10 years, fathered three children, and been on the radio and made records and done all sorts of things. He said to me, that Seeger is the youngest man I ever knew. I didn't drink, I didn't smoke, didn't chase girls. And, but I had a good ear and I could accompany him in anything. I didn't have to hear it once. The first time I heard it, I could hear a chord change coming and I could get, and I didn't play anything fancy. I just gave him a good solid backing. I didn't try and play fancy breaks or anything. Mm -hmm. So he let me tag along with him. Woody had recently begun making payments on a car which they drove down to Texas, what Woody called traveling on credit. They picked up hitchhikers along the way, sometimes with more people in the car than were supposed to be riding in it at one time. When they needed money for food or gas, they would stop at a town and play some music to make some change. At certain points during their trip through the South, Pete observed Jim Crow laws from a distance, notably a time when he and Woody stopped in a saloon for a meal and were never served. Finally, a black woman working there came over and asked them to leave, because if they didn't, she explained that local racists would show up and tear down the place. They kept on moving, though, as the two musicians wanted to make good time to Pampa, but often found themselves stopping somewhere new, taking out their instruments, walking into a bar or store, and encountering other local musicians who would invite them to someone's front porch to play music with them. It was in Oklahoma City that, with Woody, Pete composed what might have been his first song, something called 66 Highway Blues, which would later end up in their volume, Hard Hitting Songs. In Oklahoma City, they met a couple of local union organizers who asked Pete and Woody to sing at a union meeting for striking oil workers. 
The organizers expressed to Woody that he should write a union song for women, as it seemed that there was a deficit of these types of tunes. In the span of a few hours, Woody had written the now-famous song, Union Made. Pete and Woody went to the meeting to perform this for a crowd of about 50 or 60 people. As the story goes, a bunch of strange men walked in and stood forebodingly in the back of the room. The organizers told Pete and Woody that they weren't sure if these guys were there to break up the meeting or not, but it was an open meeting and they couldn't kick them out. So, the goal was to try and keep on playing and get people singing anyway. This was a challenge for a 22-year-old with limited performance experience, but people did sing along. The guys found out later that the men had planned to break up the meeting. Pete's theorization is that they didn't because of all the women and children present. However, he also theorized that it was at least possible that the crowd singing had something to do with it as well. To the tricks of the company spies. She'd never be fooled by a company stool. She'd always organize the guys. She'd always get her way when she asked for better pay. She'd show her card to the company guard, and this is what she'd say. Oh, you can't scare me. I'm a stick to the union. I'm a stick to the union. I'm a stick to the union. Oh, you can't scare me. I'm a stick to the union. I'm a stick to the union. Till the day I die. Now you gals want to be... Pete and Woody eventually arrived in Pampa, where Woody finally had to face his wife and family. Mary was not at all happy about Woody's traveling and was desperate that he stop and stay with her and the children. Pete felt awkward observing all this and got the impression that he was caught in the middle of the whole thing. Seeing the family's dire economic situation, he felt as if he was taking up space in Mary's parents' house and so he decided to head back to Oklahoma City. Woody did stay with his family this time, for a few days anyway. But by this point, Pete had absorbed much of Woody's repertoire of songs, as well as his approach to making some change by playing some tunes, and felt like he could go out on his own. As Woody told Pete, go into a bar with your banjo over your shoulder, buy a nickel beer, and sip it as slowly as possible. Eventually, someone will ask if you can play the banjo, to which you say, a little, and wait until they pander you with more requests, then you play them a tune or two. Woody explained that you would pick up more money this way, which turned out to be pretty accurate for Pete. When Pete returned from this trip to Washington, D.C. in the summer of 1940, he immediately wanted to go out again, but on his own this time. His father dropped him off on the outskirts of the D.C. area and offered him some money to get started, which Pete refused. After witnessing Guthrie and his world a little bit, Pete felt inauthentic taking cash from Charles and knew he had to do this on his own completely. This time around, Pete didn't have any sort of vehicle, and so he hitchhiked his way west and began the stereotypical hoboing on freight trains. But this time, without his traveling companion, Pete still had to learn a couple of things the hard way. As he tells it in his book, The Incomplete Folk Singer, Pete anxiously jumped off a train once in Lincoln, Nebraska, before the train got into the yard. He lost his footing and accidentally cracked the neck of his banjo. This was his only source of income. And so in a desperate state of affairs, when Pete was in Rapid City, South Dakota, he hawked a Camry he had with him for a few dollars to buy a guitar. Within a very short period of time playing for change, he made enough to get his camera back and kept on going. David Dunaway tells us that the first night with the guitar, Pete made $5 by singing Gene Autry's song, Makes No Difference Now, 
five times in a row at the behest of a bartender. In The Incomplete Folk Singer, Pete says he was paid five silver dollars in Butte, Montana for playing for a local miners' union, one silver dollar of which he lost running back through town to catch the freight train. It's hard to tell whether or not these stories are conflated, or if multiple people were paying Pete in silver dollars. Pete also made it to Alabama where he played with steel workers and coal miners. To blend in with the everyday country attire, Pete began wearing overalls to fit the part, a characteristic he affectively brought back with him to New York when he returned to the city in December 1940. When Seeger got back to New York, a couple of important things happened. Firstly, Lomax approached Pete to ask him what he learned on the banjo. Alan didn't think Pete had improved all that much, although he did comment that Pete's singing voice had gotten better. Lomax was very cognizant of the fact that Pete was one of very few people in New York who played the banjo at this time, and as such, he tried to get Pete a job on radio. Lomax found Pete a job on a program directed by Nicholas Ray. However, because of the level of Pete's musicianship, he was let go after a few sessions. But Pete turned a corner when he got introduced to someone new in New York who was working on putting out a book of labor songs. This individual, Lee Hayes, would become a very important collaborator of Pete Seeger over the next 10 years. He would eventually become a member of the Weavers and co-wrote If I Had a Hammer with Pete. But this was just the beginning. Lee Hayes was an ideal person for Seeger to meet and start working with. Hayes was raised in Arkansas, but was sent to Cleveland after his father died to live with family as a young man. In Ohio, he became radicalized as a socialist through reading books when working as a library page in the early days of the Great Depression. Lee Hayes later returned to Arkansas to work as a teacher at a radical labor organizing school called Commonwealth College. Eventually, when the school shut down due to political disagreements and financial issues, Hayes ended up in New York City. Lee had grown up on traditional music in the South and was familiar with much of the music Pete had been discovering through his travels. The two of them were interested in bringing this music to working audiences in cities as a form of political organizing, and they started rehearsing together. When Seeger met Hayes, he also got introduced to Hayes' roommate, Millard Lampell, who began joining rehearsals with them. Pete and Lee first performed together in December 1940 at the Jade Mountain Restaurant in New York City. Within a couple of months, the group had a functional repertoire and a name, the Almanac Singers. Many a thousand, 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 it has thousand, saved thousand, thousand, many a thousand, 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 Thanks, everybody, for joining us for this episode. I think this is a really important 
and interesting period of Pete Seeger's life because it's when he leaves Harvard, which is boring him and isn't productive for him, and goes on to discover what he really feels like he needs to discover. And he finds that in New York City when he gets to know some other musicians and when he connects with Alan Lomax, who helps him out in numerous ways. But also it's very integral for Pete and his musical and I think political development to meet Hudy Ledbetter um, because it's Led Belly's 12-string guitar, it's his approach to playing that Pete Seeger studies and learns and replicates, and then Woody Guthrie being a remarkably important influence. And these are the two people that by the 60s Pete is covering and trying to get other people to discover because he really felt clearly as if the gold of folk music was really represented and was really discoverable through these two guys. I think Alan Lomax's statement of you can date the renaissance of American folk song to that night at the Forest Theater in early 1940 is interesting but potentially misleading. And it's not as if Woody Guthrie and Pete Seeger didn't have a transformative effect on American folk music. They certainly did and they have. At the same time, we got to remember that the idea of taking old songs and putting new words to them was already being done before Woody Guthrie was doing it, before he showed Pete how he was doing it. It was happening with Aunt Molly Jackson and Jim Garland, and they were taking these traditional melodies, Appalachian tunes, and writing political songs, labor songs, to those melodies. Um, it's just something that they adapted, and perhaps they made more accessible um, and distributed further. Something else that stands out for me is the, the book of hard-hitting songs for hard-hitting people not finding a publisher till the late 60s um, and then being republished just over 10 years ago. Um, it's not as if, because the book, what book wasn't published in the 40s, it didn't really have an effect on the 60s folk revival because it wasn't a published book. I mean, the songs that were discovered there came through records and came through archives and people looking for them. And the people that were responsible for redeploying the music, Pete Seeger, but also Dylan and Judy Collins and Baez and Phil Oaks especially, uh, that was through their own searches and their own work to find recordings and to meet people that played those songs. It's interesting that the book didn't have um, a remarkable effect um, because it, it, it wasn't published, um, but it is still, of course, a very important resource. So I really thought that I would bring the almanacs and their story in before World War II into this episode. Um, and a lot happens between 1941 and 42 for the almanac singers. That's really when they operated as a musical group, as a band. Um, but there's a lot of detail there and there's a lot of story. And while it is you know, a logical progression, um, I felt like it needed to be more broken up instead of having it all in one in this episode. And we already have a lot of detail here, I think, anyway. Um, but this is going to become the time in the next episode we'll see that Pete Seeger finally plays in a more organized group. And because he has that kind of need to get them organized, um, he finds his footing to balance the singing and the instrumental playing, which he had trouble with, he'd struggled with for a while before he's now thrown into that situation with the Almanac Singers and could finally begin collaborating with others who had a similar vision. Um, so really Pete Seeger puts that together before he ends up going into World War II uh, in the middle of 1942.
So that'll be coming up in the next episode. There is a Season, the Pete Seeger podcast, is written, recorded, and produced by Adam C. Morse. Musical selections for this episode have included La Internacionala by Pierre de Guetterre, performed by Pete Seeger at Sanders Theatre in Cambridge, Massachusetts in 1980. The Ballad of Harry Sims by Aunt Molly Jackson and Jim Garland, performed by Pete Seeger. Governor Neff and Bourgeois Blues by Hudy Ledbetter. New York City, written by Hudy Ledbetter, performed by Pete Seeger, Willie Dixon, and Memphis Slim. Taxes on the Farmer That Feeds Us All by Noel Shaw, performed by Ry Cooter. Do Re Mi, written performed by Woody Guthrie. Union Made, written by Woody Guthrie, performed by Pete Seeger. And Union Train by the Almanac Singers. See you next time. Thank you.